Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is happening, gang? We have got a jam-packed show for you today on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian. Bill's Mafia, you have been calling for it, and we are here to answer the bell. You might be 4-0 in this season, but we are going to take you back to a tumultuous time in Bill's history in 1984 and 1985 as Bill would descend upon Buffalo and begin the process of building one of the great dynasties in NFL history. This is our first look at building the Buffalo Bills. In this first episode, we look at Bill and his early days with the Bills from moving on from the USFL to some of the first key things he had to navigate, the biggest of which is getting Bruce Smith signed at the top of the 1985 NFL draft. This is truly an awesome episode. Even if you're not a super Bills fan, this was one of the most sort of interesting times in the league. You had the end of the USFL, you were competing for players, the 85 draft was a mega draft, the Bills would end up taking two Hall of Fame players in Bruce Smith and Andre Reid and had a chance to get Jerry Rice, which I ask about in the show. So sit back, relax, and get ready. This is the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian, and this is our look at building the Bills. All right. Well, hey, speaking of lighting things on fire, Bill's Mafia, get the tables ready, fire them up and get ready to set them on fire because you guys have asked for it and we have it. Today, we begin our three-part look at building the Bills. This has been something you guys have been clamoring for for weeks, and so we cannot wait on the heels of another Bills victory yesterday in Las Vegas to dive into these embryonic days with the Buffalo Bills. So without any Further ado, Rick, kick us into the story for this week that I believe starts in the uh, 1984 range. That would be exactly right. I think that is the place to start. you got to remember, especially for our younger listeners, that pro football was a really different place then. Uh, you had a competitive league, the USFL, which was uh, at first a spring league, but was looking to actually go head-to-head with the NFL. But the big thing was they were paying big money, kind of like the days when you back to the AFL-NFL rivalry. Uh, so uh, Bill, at this point in time, 1984, was serving as the de facto GM of a team called the Chicago Blitz. Bill, tell us about your USFL experience uh, in general and uh, the Blitz in specific? Well, the Blitz w- w- was in effect a, an expansion team. There had been a Chicago Blitz the previous year, the first year of the USFL. It was coached by George Allen. Uh, but the owner of that team, who was a Phoenix heart surgeon, decided to move the team to Phoenix, and they became the Arizona Wranglers. And what was left of the Chicago Blitz was uh, was a headquarters at Maine North High School outside Chicago, uh, some front office staffers, no coach, no football people, very few players. And as it turned out, 
very little equipment. So uh, Coach Levy was hired to be the head coach and, and, and general manager, and and I was then the personnel director and assistant GM of the uh, Winnipeg Blue Bombers in the CFL. So Coach Levy offered me the job. Naturally, I jumped at it. And uh, uh, little did both of us know that we, we were inheriting uh, what amounted to a skeleton, <laughs> skeleton force <laughs> and skeleton everything else. So uh, uh, one of the few people who who uh, who stayed behind because he was a Illinois native was John Butler. So he became the personnel director. I became the uh, essentially the assistant GM and uh, and we hired a coaching staff and and we had some players left over who were who the Wranglers chose not to not to sign for the, the following year. They were largely old bears, Revisori, people like that. Uh, Vince Evans, our quarterback. Um, but we had to build the team basically from scratch. So John and I hold up John Butler and I hold up in a hotel room uh, in the Skokie. Illinois Hilton for three weeks. We went home for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, came back, spent New Year's Eve in there, um, building a, a, a roster uh, through signings and people that we were going to draft into college draft and 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 people we could call from other teams, cuts, etc. And we both smoked heavily in those days. And I'm sure that the, the room has never you know, never <laughs> lost the smell of that smoke. <laughs> hey, Bill, Bill, please tell me you at least smoke filters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they they were filters, both of us. Okay, not camels. Okay, good. Okay. But but the uh, in, in any event, um, we went off to camp in Arizona, and uh, and we had a remarkably uh, functional camp. That's Coach Levy, of course. Nothing bothers him. He just you know. Keep uh, take one step uh, at a time and keep your eye on the target. We had a wonderful training camp at the, uh, a high school that was uh, defunct. You know, wasn't operating in the in the Tempe area, and uh, and everything was running along smoothly. And uh, and and I got a call uh, during practice one day from our our uh, executive assistant uh, Debbie Pollum, who said. Um, you need to come over here right away. Steve Earhart from the league office wants to meet with you. So I went over to the headquarters, which was in the hotel we were staying in. And uh, and Steve sat down and said, the doctor, and I, to, to be honest with you, I forget his name right now. He was from Milwaukee. He was also a heart surgeon who had bought the team from uh, from essentially Dr. Dietrich and George Allen uh, has walked away. So you are now a ward of the league, and your budget is cut by fifty percent. So we, with that good news, we 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 can. Marv just said, "Okay, let's let's keep going." You know, that's all we, we let, let's just keep on going. What what else can we do? So we did, and um, they the league sent in a guy named Carl Morasco, who was one of the original draft Knicks. To, to sort of oversee uh, uh, what was going on and report back to the league, but he thought he was he was going to be the general manager, and he traded our best receiver uh, while we were 
at a road game in Detroit. <laughs> when, we got, <laughs> when we got back, I was apoplectic, and it took about two good. Took John Butler's. It was it was about six five and three hundred and twenty five pounds, and it it took all 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 of his strength to keep me from doing harm to Morasco. <laughs> but uh, we, you know, we talked with the commissioner of the league, Chet Simmons, and made it clear to him that we weren't going to turn over the football operation to his, his designee. And uh, Steve Earhart, who's now, by the way, runs the Liberty Bowl, um, the, the bowl game and, and, the, and the, the group that, that sponsors it, uh, was was very good and, you know, made it clear to Morasco, you, I mean, you're here to just make sure that money isn't wasted and stuff like that. You're not, don't let the football guys run football. So anyway, we lost six straight to start the season and then um, made a lot of changes on the roster and ended up winning five straight at the end. Uh, losing uh, on the last day, we would have made the playoffs to the, uh, to uh, the, the New York, the New Jersey Generals, uh, and uh, on a terrible call at the end of the game, uh, which I've never forgotten. I, I won't mention the <laughs> name of the official, but he later went on to officiate in the NFL, <laughs> and I would always remind him of it. Did he ever give you payback in the NFL? <laughs> you know what? He, he's such a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 I can't. Not that I can remember. We never really had any trouble with him in the NFL. But <laughs> he's such a nice guy. He would always. He said, "You're never going to forgive me, are you?" I said, "No, I'm not." <laughs> <laughs> you can't make those things up. That doesn't work. Yeah. No. 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 <laughs> in any event, um, uh, our season ended on a, on an upbeat note, albeit a funny one. As part of the uh, as part of the uh, protocol it's up to the home team to supply towels for the visiting team and uh the, the, that game against the new jersey generals i believe was our last game of the season and um and we did not have towels to supply to them at, at that time there was a holiday in very near soldier field old soldier field not the, the building that's been renovated now um and and right near McCormick Place, which is adjacent to Soldier Field, which is the big convention center. So I literally took about 25 jerseys, uh, game jerseys that were um, we weren't going to wear that day. They were road jerseys. And Vince Evans and a few others, Doug Plank, et cetera, former Bears, had them autographed. And I traded them for, I think, 250 towels. Uh, on the uh, on the day before the game, that's got to be a football first when you do the signed jersey uh, for Tal's trade. That uh, that's I don't think that's happening next weekend. That, yeah, that that would that would also say something at the U.S. that jerseys are equal to a each one jersey is a towel. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but had it not been signed, probably not equal to a towel. You know, one jersey, one jersey equaled about. 20 towels. All right. But and, and, unsigned, it would have been like washcloths. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you get washcloths. But I blame I blame Rick for all of this, because if Rick hadn't landed Herschel Walker with the New Jersey's generals, you probably would have won and you know been in the playoffs, right? <laughs> well, 
I'll leave that up to you, Bill. <laughs> As I recall, Herschel had one touchdown that day. I can't remember what. I don't think he did much else other than that. In any event, again, the, Rick's uh, fault. <laughs> the the league then went dark at the behest of Donald Trump, uh, who was who was they were suing the NFL and they were going to go dark and begin play in the fall two years later. So um, at that point, uh, Eddie Einhorn as the principal owner and Jerry Reinsdorf, both of whom owned the Chicago White Sox, came in and bought the Blitz. And uh, it was soon after July 4th. Uh, I went downtown, met with them, along with a man named Gene Fanning, one of the most wonderful and honorable people I've ever met in my life. He's deceased now, God rest his soul, so is Eddie. Um, and uh, and they offered me the, the GM's job formally, which I accepted. Um, and then less than two weeks later, I got a call from... Don Lawrence, who was then the defensive coordinator of the Buffalo Bills, who had who I'd worked with with the Kansas City Chiefs, and he said, "We have an opening here for a personnel director and a pro personnel director. We've never had one before. The guy that had the job, uh, we just hired him. He's had a hor- horrible back issue and can't work, and we got to fill the position. So I recommended you to." Kay Stevenson, who's the head coach, um, could you hop over here and, and, and interview? So I said, sure, I'd be happy to. So I told Marv. He said, go ahead on the interview. That's fine. And, uh, and I told Gene Fanning, to whom I reported on a, on a day-by-day basis. And both of them said to me, look, you know, that, that's a subordinate position. Um, you're going to be the GM here. You're going to be the guy calling the shots. And if this league goes, your career will skyrocket. And I, I liked very much living in Chicago. It's, it's one of the most wonderful places to live in the world, and, and especially a good sports city. In any event, um, I went and had the interview. Um, Kay called me the next day and essentially offered me the job. He said, I want you to meet with Terry Bledsoe, the general manager, but that's just a formality. Uh, I'm making the hire. And it was about, as I recall, it was $20,000 less than I was making with, with the Blitz. My wife claims that it was 30000 less. <laughs> um, she's probably right. But you might have gotten towels. But I could have all the towels I wanted. There was exactly. no, I mean, that right. was the, that was the essence of it. That's the key. Exactly. Unlimited towels. We were going to play football and, and, and we had unlimited towels and socks and T-shirts and what have you. And of course, it was the NFL. So um, I went and spoke to, uh, to Marv and, to, and, and not to Gene immediately. Marv tried to dissuade me. Um, and, uh, and I was really torn about it. Uh, and then there was a league meeting where Donald Trump announced uh, formally that we were going to go dark and that we were going to sue the NFL and the USFL was going to win and so on and so forth. Um, 
and and I had to go see Gene Fanning and and uh, I sat down and I explained everything to Gene. And I said, I'm really worried about this idea of going dark, Gene. I, when you when you, he was in the automotive business, by the way, very successfully. And I said, you know, if you closed up your showroom for for a year and then reopened, your clientele is going to go elsewhere. I mean, it's, it doesn't make sense to me. He also, Gene Fanning, was also a adjunct professor at the Notre Dame Business School, Notre Dame graduate. And uh, he said to me, look, uh, I'm not sure I should tell you this, but he said, you got a big family. Um, take care of your family first. We're, we're going to hate to lose you, but I, I can't say that the, f- the future of this league is a- as as good as that of the NFL, that's for sure. And and I never forgot his generosity because I thought so highly of him. If he had said to me, Bill, stay, we're going to make this work, it, I, I probably would have. But um, he said what he said, and I told Marv that I had to go, and Marv was, of course— as always, gracious, and 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 John Butler stepped into my my shoes, which was a which was a good thing. John was perfectly capable, as he later proved uh, during his time as general manager in in, in both Buffalo and San Diego. Um, and so, off I went to the Buffalo Bills. But '84 was kind of a crazy year in the sense that the the person who had preceded me briefly had never set the office up. So there was a small <laughs> office um, with no boards and no personnel boards in it, nothing but old newspapers stacked up in the corner. So I had to get rid of that. It was the size of maybe a large uh, room closet. You know, it wasn't very big. It was yeah. tucked in between the coach's conference room and the quarterback room. <laughs> and um, and so uh, – uh, you know, I, I I got to work and just worked night and day to try to get everything squared away and set up and running before we went to training camp. And then we went to camp and things were things were hectic. And when we got back from camp, um, uh, I drove back with with Coach Stevenson, and uh, and he said to me, "Hey, by the way, um, if, if Mr. Wilson hasn't been around, uh, the owner," so he said. Uh, and you're going to be out doing the advance work on on Thursday through Sunday anyway, so you're not likely to see him. But if if you do, lay low, you know, go in your office and hide or something, because he doesn't <laughs> know we filled the job. <laughs> <laughs> Just hide under the newspapers. So so welcome to the glamour of the NFL. You're working out of a broom closet, and you got and you got to hide when the boss shows up. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, do, I don't want to leave one thing out of the story. In addition to your per, player personnel, uh, 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 pro personnel duties, you also had some coaching duties. Uh, and there's a good Jim Ringo story that goes with this. Would you tell us about your coaching stint and Mr. Ringo? Well, it, it, the coaching I did was was really helping out with special teams. But the Jim Ringo story is priceless because it's, it's it's as it's as true a portrait of Jim Ringo as anyone will ever hear. Jim was a, a legendary Hall of Fame center for Vince Lombardi in Green Bay, and you know 
he claims he played at 215. I think that's probably about right. He was by far the toughest physical and men- physically and mentally person I'd ever met. And Ringo was an apt name because if he played in a Western as the uh, monosyllabic, stern, uh, concrete-like Sheriff Ringo, that's what you saw. That's what he was. That was his personality. Johnny Ringo. Yeah. <laughs> we were at the dinner uh, w- one night with the with the whole staff, and and I was seated about three seats from him at, at this big round table, and he was next to Kay Stevenson. And, and he said to Kay, who's that down there? Pointed toward me. And Kay said, that's Bill Polian. He said, he's our pro guy. He, he's, he's terrific. He'll he'll. He helps us win. And and Jim said, uh, he grumbled. So the next day I came to work and he walked into my office and, no, hello, how are you? Nothing like that. And he said, uh, uh, I want a complete rundown on all the uh, rush fronts in the division. In those days, there were that was a six-team division, the AFC East. Miami was king of the hill. And uh, and so, and Jim was the offensive line coach. So, you know, how, how do you how do you do this uh, quickly? He said, "I want it by Thursday." This was Saturday. So, I said to my wife, "I'll see you." You know, sometime after Thursday. <laughs> this was the <laughs> off season, and I got in the office and went to work went over the film, went over the old scouting reports, wrote it up, worked literally night and day. And uh, and so walked in uh, uh, to Jim's office on, on Thursday morning. I said, Coach, here's the rundown you wanted. So he looked up and he said, okay. <laughs> and out I walked. So <laughs> now – Keep in mind that this is Vince Lombardi's Hall of Fame center, right? So for someone like me who's trying to make his way in professional football, this is this this might be like meeting General MacArthur, you know? Right. It's just right? And 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 if he if he's just so much as says get lost, that's the end of your career, right? Right. You're just independently getting lost on your own at that point. Exactly right. Yeah. So uh, a day goes by the following afternoon. He walks into my office, takes the uh, scouting report, which I don't know, 50, 75 pages and and tosses it on my desk and says, you'll do. (laughs) (laughs) And from that day forward, we were close, close, close friends. (laughs) <laughs> See, I think that should have been in the name of the running for the book. I think I think you'll do much stronger than the game plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come to think of it, you might have been right. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah, it's clearly better than you won't do, but all right. Right. So, so uh we're going on to Silver Linings playbook time here. So that season, uh and it was not Bill's fault, the the Bills wound up two and fourteen. Worst in the league. But that earned you the first draft pick 
in the 85 draft. But before we get to that pick in the regular draft, there was a complex scenario that played out that, include, that included Bernie Kosar, our good buddy Ernie Accorsi, the supplemental draft, Chip Banks, and a valuable insider tip and a contingency plan that played off big time. Tell us about that, Bill. <laughs> well, the the first order of business was the regular draft because at two and fourteen we had the first pick in the draft, and the question was was were we going to take Bruce Smith or were we going to take the Texas A and M defensive tackle? Uh, whose name escapes me at the moment? It shouldn't, but Ray um, Ray Childress. Ray Childress. This is one of the, this is one of my favorite drafts of all time, by the way. So I I dorkily know it very well. So, um, Norm Pollum and 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 Kay made that call, and I, I had a voice in it. Um, interestingly enough, I I was pretty close. I, I had them both pretty close. It didn't turn out to be that way. Norm was a hundred percent right on that one. Um, he saw what Bruce could become, not what he what he was at the college level at the time, which was a three hundred pound guy who was overweight and who flashed incredible talent, but but didn't produce all the time. Uh, versus Ray Childress, who was much lighter and and had a motor that would never quit, but didn't have the upside that Bruce did. So we had to get that out of the way, and then. Uh, uh, we had to get Bruce signed and in in competition with the Baltimore Stars of the USFL. Bruce is from Virginia Beach, Virginia. Baltimore was much closer to home than Buffalo. And Buffalo at that time, with all due respect to all my friends in Buffalo, it was viewed as Siberia. Jokes uh, <laughs> on TV by Johnny Carson. You know, it, we, we were the laughing stock in the National Football League in the city. And Western New York was the laughing stock, really, of America at that point for a lot of different reasons. Buffalo had hemorrhaged over 200,000 jobs when the steel industry went, went down in the, in the 70s and early 80s. So it was a shell of what it had been economically. And, 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 and unfortunately, the bill's performance reflected that. In any event, um, the, there was a supplemental draft at that time where the rules were very different than they are now. And, and the, the principal rule was that a player, if he completed his college education, could, um, before the supplemental draft, could declare for the supplemental draft and be eligible. So that's what Bernie Kosar decided to do because he wanted to play for his hometown team, the Cleveland Browns. As I remember, Bernie's from Akron or the Akron area. And Ernie Accorsi was the was then the general manager of the of the Cleveland Browns. And so Ernie called asking if we would trade the first pick in the supplemental draft, which belonged to us by by way of the two and fourteen season, 
<coughs> pardon me. Um, and so we we discussed it, Kay and, and Norm and I. Terry Bledsoe, our general manager, was out of the picture because he had suffered a debilitating heart attack, which kept him bedridden and and unable to work for almost six months. So we discussed the issue of the, of the trade and we had we asked for, as I recall, a first, a second and a third to do it. So we were going to swap with Cleveland so we had an extra first round pick and then we got a second, third, maybe even a fourth to do it. But Cleveland was offering, in lieu of the lower draft choices, was offering players, the most notable of which was Chip Banks, a linebacker who was going to hold out. He wasn't going to come in with Cleveland, although he had, I think, a year, maybe two to go on his contract. And he was a good linebacker. And so we're debating whether or not to make the trade, number one, and number two, whether or not to go ahead and get Chip Banks in lieu of, this, I think, the third and fourth round choices or second, third choices. Uh, so um, I, I was I was out scouting somewhere, you know, in the pre-draft period and, and ran into a friend of mine um, who had worked for the Browns. And, of course, you know, you can't keep talks like that quiet because agents are involved and stuff like that. And he said to me, you're going to make that trade? And I said, well, we're debating it. I think so. Uh, Norm is kind of leaning that way. Kay's kind of leaning that way. And he said, let me tell you something. Chip Banks is never coming to Buffalo. Never. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, oh, okay. So <laughs> I took the... As a good scout, it was my job to bring the intelligence information back. So I brought it back. I gave Kay and, and Norm the, the, the source, which was, they recognized was a good source. And so uh, Kay said, all right, let's do this. He said, you call Ernie and tell him that we want to talk with Chip Banks before um, we make the trade. So I called Ernie and he was he readily agreed. Ernie's a great guy, by the way. Great guy. And so Chip Banks, as I recall, was living in Atlanta. And so uh, Elijah Pitts went down to talk with him, our offensive backfield coach. And Elijah was one of the world's great guys and had played with for Lombardi in Green Bay along with Jim Ringo. You know, and it, everybody loved Elijah. God rest his soul. So... Um, he goes down there and he goes to Chip Banks' apartment. He lived in an apartment house down there and or a townhome, I guess. Knocks on the door and says, uh, Chip comes to the door but doesn't open it and says, um, uh, you know, who is it? Elijah Pitts from the Buffalo Bills. Chip never opened the door. They had a conversation <laughs> through the door. <laughs> And so Elijah came back and said, Chip Banks is not coming to Buffalo. <laughs> so <laughs> we, 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 turned, we turned 
that part of the trade down and got the draft choices instead. And I know there was a fourth involved. I'm certain there was because that fourth became Andre Reed and the third became Frank Reich. Um, in any event, um, the, we we then that was the that was the, the, the sort of backstory involving Ernie and, of course, uh, uh, and the Browns. And of course, uh, uh, Bernie went to Cleveland and, and, and had a great career with the Browns and is still a beloved Brown to this day. Yep, absolutely. Uh, took him about as close as they were ever going to get, it seems, you know, to, to the big game. Um, uh, so, Bill, I don't know if you know this or not. Uh, getting back to the Bruce Smith thing, uh, you know, as you'll recall, Brig Owens was Bruce's uh, primary agent. And Brig and I were quite good friends and we were colleagues when I was at the NFL Players Association and he had never done a big contract before. I know you hadn't either, but neither had he. So he had called me um, prior to beginning and, uh, you know, asked me what he thought, what I thought was a reasonable number and did some role playing and told him what to expect in the negotiation. So um, I'm wondering uh, how accurate my speculation was way back all those years ago about how high you were willing to go. Um, you know, so take us through that negotiation, uh, from your point of view, uh, you know, and then the, uh, you had the major takeaways, uh, from the, the experience of doing your first big contract. Tell us how you grew as a result of that, but let me know how close I was to knowing we could, how far we could push you. (laughs) Well, again, that, that was a, uh, that that year eighty four and eighty five was an untoward year, um, nothing like twenty twenty, but a lot of lot of crazy stuff happening, and uh, so Terry Bledsoe became ill and had this terrible heart attack, so he's bedridden, and uh, we've got to sign Bruce Smith, so Mr. Wilson called Kay Stevenson and and and. Norm Pollum and, and a, a man named Pat McGroder, who was a, a Pat was close to 80 at that point in time, but had been Ralph's guy in Buffalo for a long time. Pat was a lifelong Buffalonian. And all three of those guys had, had taken a liking to me. And so they told Ralph, listen, we, we have Bill Polian in here. He's the pro guy. He signed players in Canada. He signed players in the USFL he can do this negotiation. Um, he can handle it. And so Mr. Wilson said, okay, send him over here. So I went over to Detroit to meet with him. And I met with uh, Dave Olson, who uh, was the treasurer uh, for Ralph's businesses. He had a number of businesses uh, uh, over and above the bills. And, uh, and we talked about, uh, we talked about, the substance of the contract. We talked about guarantees. We talked about um, the way it should be handled. Um, we we talked about what the money ought to be, uh, and and so Mr. Wilson said, "Well, you know, I've always believed that smart young people deserve a chance, so I'm going to give you a chance. Uh, you go ahead and do it. Dave will Dave will work with the cash flow and things like that. 
you two guys go ahead and do it. So off we went. And uh, no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's a chance to move out of the broom closet. That's the best part of it. Yeah. Those speeches never don't. They always produce just a smidge of pressure when it's like, <laughs> I always think young people deserve a shot. Keep in mind that I was still in the blue broom closet. I hadn't changed offices. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, this is your chance. <laughs> so uh, escape from the broom closet. <laughs> so uh, we went into the negotiations. As it turned out, Brig and I had known each other from the USFL days. And I, I always had high regard for him. Um I was friendly with George Allen. He had played for George Allen. So we, we had we had common ground, which is really important when you're doing a negotiation of any kind. If you have common ground, it's, it's a lot easier than to just have to go in and do it cold. Yep. Yep. And, 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 and Bruce, is all, he was also a great guy, Bill. I mean, Brig was your kind of guy. I mean, solid, honest, on, honorable. Yes. Yeah. Honor, yes. All of the above. And so... Um, and Dave was just as good as you would find in terms of both numbers. He was a phenomenal finance person and one of the really great people you'll ever meet in your life. And, and, and as a, a, a bishop in the, in the Mormon faith, you know, that, that really says it all. So uh, <clears throat> uh, we're, we're, it looked like we we're getting along pretty well. Now, the, the, the Smith family... Um, had an attorney who was working alongside Brig. And really, unless it got into uh, arcane financial issues, Dave Olson really didn't do much talking. I did most of the talking. And a lot of it was on football uh, and, and, and uh, cultural issues with Buffalo. Bruce had had some real feelings, as did everyone at that point, about not wanting to go to Buffalo. In the in the view of the football world, Buffalo was Siberia, and uh, so there was a lot of discussion of that. That, that was the, the first negotiation, and then the second, third, fourth, fifth. We it went on for the better part of about three weeks, as I recall. Ended up being about money, and as we went along, particularly. Uh, after we got past the early football and cultural issues, the the attorney for the Smith family the, would would keep bringing up the the Buffalo cultural issues and the and the and and how how bad the team was and things of that nature. It was pretty clear, at least to me, that he was working on the stars' side of the street. Because he would always make comparisons. Oh, Coach Moore is this, and Carl Peterson is that, and and we don't even know you, and Stevenson's not a good coach, and you know things of that nature. <clears throat> now, whether that was designed to get under my skin, or or was actually designed to influence the talks, I, I don't know. But um, that's sort of the tenor of it. So then, in the final analysis. Dave and I said, "Look, we, we've got to we've got to bring this to a head, one way or the other." And don't forget, because of the rules, we had not exercised the choice yet. We hadn't chosen Bruce. We weren't going to actually choose him. This was going on in February and March. We were going to actually choose him uh, 
once we had agreement on, on the contract. So uh, the whole card we had was, if you're not going to sign with us, we're not going to choose you. So that's, you know, be our guest. Go where you want. So it finally came down to that. Uh, I didn't put it as crassly as that. I, you know, it was polite and, and said, look, we're, Mr. Wilson's done all he can. We've done all we can. Um, and if, if you're going to sign with us, we'll welcome you with open arms. And we think that, you know, what we've talked about here is appropriate. And if, if, you, if you don't wish to, then go ahead to Baltimore, be our guest, and, and we'll move on. And uh, so, as I recall, Briggs said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll be back to you in a, in, in a day. So they, as good as the word, he got back, and we we did some some little uh, gives at the end of the contract. You always hold something back because the agent always wants something at the end to close the deal. So we <laughs> we, we we did that, and to, so he can tell his client he got a little bit more at the end. I, honestly, I can't remember what the number was, but I know that our ceiling was somewhere around a million. And and I don't think we got there. I think we got it done under that. Something around seven hundred fifty thousand rings a bell in my mind, but I but I don't remember and I I don't have any notes on it. So Okay. Uh I don't know what your number was, Rick, but the <laughs> Well, yeah. I, I mean at that point, actually you just mentioned my number. I, I kind of figured with the, you know, and also, Bill, you, 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 in, in terms of the litany of problems in bringing to Buffalo, uh, and Johnny Carson, you left out one other element: snow. <laughs> oh well, that's a given. <laughs> that's a given. <laughs> which you know, which did, which did not present. Oh, yes, uh, we'll find a way to get you to practice every day when you have to dig out, you know, from your house at <laughs> a five feet of stone. That's a given. Yeah, but seven hundred and fifty k and. In Buffalo in 1985 is like a trillion dollars. There, there also has to be another way to spin that. I, I actually remember a Johnny Carson joke. He said, the mayor of Buffalo has come up with a new snow removal system. It's called spring. <laughs> <laughs> Which in a good year comes on May 1st. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh but I, I, a million was what I said to, to Brig, and I remember when we went back and forth, and he told me, uh, you know, and actually he was uh, quite uh, laudatory about you, and and he felt that you know you had go, you had you had gone as far as as you you know you could possibly go, and uh, it, and this is a big deal in his career, you know, his first big name contract for a player. So, uh, but I felt like at the end, everybody actually did walk away uh, feeling fairly treated on both sides. So I think that's that's the key to a good uh, c contract because, you know, the next guy's going to come in the next year and numbers are always going to change. And you're, and players are always going to be in a way dissatisfied with what they get when they see what the guy behind them is getting. So the only thing you can hope for is you develop a good relationship in the time. You feel you're being fairly treated in the at, you know, at the time of the negotiation. And then you know that a guy like Bill Polian, if you succeed – it's going to take care of you down the road. There'll be other chances. So that's, that's, you know, and I think, Bill, that was what you did and, you know, and, and, and do. Uh, so I think that that, that's really, to me, 
the, uh, the way to maintain the relationship with with us with a guy who goes on to be a superstar like Bruce. Yeah, and, and I know it was less than a million. It, it could have been nine hundred for all I know. Once this podcast is is up, Bruce will call me and let me know how wrong I was on the number. But the, <laughs> the if I'm wrong, but I, I you know I think it was somewhere between seven fifty and eight fifty, something like that. Anyway, anyway, uh, because the 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 number one million is is actually what Jim got. On, on an annual basis, Jim Kelly. So yeah, uh, Bruce wasn't going to get that much, but it, it was a record contract at the time. No question about that. So um, we, we, we went ahead and, uh, and, and Bruce came in and signed and we had a great draft that year, as I said, drafted Frank Reich and Andre Reed. And um, so the, the cornerstone for the resurgence of the bills um was laid. And interestingly enough, before we, we, we entered into the Ernie Accorsi Cleveland Brown trade, I, I met with Coach Stevenson and who I to this day revere. I mean, he's one of just a phenomenal person and a really good coach. And I said to him, look, you know, we got the first pick in the draft and it's a good draft. And, and we've, we've got, um, we can get to all these picks in the supplemental draft. And if we want to trade them, uh, we can get a King's ransom in terms of veteran players back. And let's face it. If we don't win next year, we're all out. And most of all, you're out. So my strong opinion is let's see what, what, what kind of players we can get in trade for these picks. And 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 let's start winning football games. We had Joe Ferguson at quarterback, and he was coming toward the end of his career, but I, I thought he was still serviceable, and so did Kay. Um, we'd lost Joe Cribs to the to the USFL, which was a tremendous blow, and we we needed a a running back. Greg Bell was supposed to be that guy, but hadn't really panned out, and uh, and and so that was a viable alternative. And and Kay looked me right in the eye and said, no, Bill, our job here is to build the best franchise we can. And drafting Bruce Smith and other good players is how we build this franchise. That's our responsibility. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out for us. But we've done the best we can for Mr. Wilson and the franchise. I've never forgotten that. And he paid the price. He paid the price. And he did more than selflessly, more than anybody to start the resurgence of the Buffalo Bills, because the cornerstone for all the success we had later on was due to his selflessness. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Bill, one sort of nerdy before we kind of wrap the 85 draft, because I've always wanted to ask this. So. You know, obviously the 85 draft was amazing. There's five Hall of Famers. You guys drafted two of them and Andre Reed and Bruce Smith. One thing that I've always thought was interesting was you needed a receiver and receiver was a position of that you wanted to address when you had that because a lot of people maybe forget this as part of that sort of uh, Cleveland Browns 
smorgasbord trade. You ended up with 14 as well. And then two picks later, Jerry Rice would be selected by the 49ers. Was he in the com? Obviously you were pro personnel at the time. Was he in the conversation for Terry Bledsoe at that point? Uh, did he come up at all at 14? Uh, not that I recall. Not that I recall. Could you have imagined that K-Gun offense with Jerry Rice yeah. and yeah. Andre? I mean, the, the, the rap on Jerry, the rap, I thought in my mind, I'd have to go look this up, but in my mind, I think Jerry came out the following year. Was he in that 85 draft? Yeah. He, yeah. He was drafted 16th okay. in that 85 draft. So I've always thought, okay. Okay. you know, knowing you now, it's like, that feels like a, that would have been a bill three out of five hall of famer kind of, kind of pull. And Oh, by the way, you got Kevin green in Carolina. The knock on Jerry was that he that he he didn't run fast, which he which he really didn't. But, but yeah, that didn't mean anything when he got on the football field. <laughs> right, right. Did, did the uh, the level of competition also hurt him from college? Yeah, that was it was a consideration. Yeah, it was a consideration. I mean, I always think that you know that in that kind of a situation, you know, the guy can't run fast, and you're com- if you're comparing him to talent at a lower level, you know. You, you you think oh yeah but when he moves up he's not going to be able to do whatever he's doing so if you know because if he had been playing at the top level and you saw the passes he was catching who cares how fast he is but you know I think that to me that was a double problem uh, for him and you know look he only turned out to be the greatest receiver in the history of football so uh, so uh, <laughs> so eighty five let's talk about eighty five uh, good news was you had Bruce Smith who was a star player, uh, takes a little of a sting out of losing Joe Cribbs to the USFL. But at the season's end, the record book would again reflect a 2-14 and 14 season. In your mind, at that point, let's take you back to that point, where did things stand with the club and where did things stand with Bill Polian and the club? Well, Kay had been let go at, at, at midseason. Um, and was replaced by Hank Buller, who was the defensive coordinator. Very different kind of guy. Totally different, yeah. Uh, Hank had brought in Jim Valick, who was uh, a, an acquaintance of his. I, I don't know if they'd worked together somewhere before, to essentially be his general manager. Jim Valick was running all of football operations. Um, Terry Bledsoe was back at work, but Valak had, had essentially come in and said, I'm, I'm in charge and nobody had said otherwise. And so I was reporting to Jim Valak and, and that was, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a good relationship. I mean, he was professional enough and nice enough, but, um, I don't think he, he placed any value on, on my work. Um, so it was one of those situations where you say to yourself, well, Hey, once this season ends and I'm gone. So like most other people in that situation, like many of the holdover coaches from K staff, um, I, I just, you know, began to say, well, it's over for me. Um, and then, I went off to scout the All-Star Games, um, which I, 
you know, as part of my duty. Uh, uh, I did a lot of college work where Norm Palm was the boss, and, and I learned a great deal from him. Um, and and I was at, uh, as I recall, it might have been the Blue Gray All Star Game, which is which is Christmas week. I don't think it was the Senior Bowl, but um, it was the last week of the regular season, and and I was not at our game. Um, as I I wasn't at most of the games because I was the advanced guy, but I wasn't advancing that week, so I went off to the All Star Game, interviewing players and things like that. And, and obviously scouting the practices. And so I, I called back to the office on Monday morning. We, we got our clock cleaned by somebody on Sunday afternoon. And I called back to Terry Bledsoe, uh, to whom I was ostensibly still reporting. And, and I said to him, well, Terry, the best thing about this season is it, it's over. And, <laughs> and he said, yeah, well, I got news for you. I said, what's that? He said, I've been fired. So, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> so I was shocked. And I, and I, and I, I, you know, I committed a terrible faux pas by, you know, making that statement. I apologized. And he said, well, everything will be okay. You know, uh, don't worry about it. He said, you, you got to, a good reputation. Everybody here respects you. He said, had I stayed, I was going to name you assistant general manager anyway. So, uh, you know, you'll be okay. And I'll, I'll be happy to give you good reference. So I, I thanked him very much and hung up the phone. And uh, a couple of nights earlier at this All-Star game, I'd run into Jim Schaff, who had been my boss in Kansas City. And who is really the guy who got me started on the executive track? I was just—I would have been very happy to be a scout for the rest of my life, uh, but Jim got me started on the executive track, and and we talked, and he said, "How's things going?" I said, "I think we're done, Jim. It's you know, you you can. We all have a sense of it in this business when it's over." And uh, and he said, "Well, what would you think about coming back and working for me?" And I said, wow, yeah, that'd be great. So he said, okay, uh, depending on what happens at the end of the season, let's let's talk. So I said, okay, tremendous. So I, I called home and I said, you know, Jim Schaff said there's a, there's a chance we go back to the Chiefs. And everybody felt a little bit better. And, you know, you always try to prepare your family for – when things like that are going to happen and it's this business is harder on the families than it is on anyone else. We get, we get uh, inured to it, but the families don't. And so, um, I was planning on hopefully going back to the Kansas city chiefs. And then out of the blue, I got a call from Dave Olson who said, listen, uh, can you come? Can you come up to uh, Detroit um, tomorrow? And I said, "Yeah, sure, okay." And uh, I didn't ask why. 
I presumed it was maybe because Mr. Wilson wanted to say goodbye or maybe on the off chance, tell me, look, we're going to keep you in the position you're in until we name a new general manager or something of those, something along those lines. So I flew up to Detroit and um, went over to the office and uh, Mr. Wilson said, uh, uh, we're going to name you the new general manager. And literally, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Um, I was shocked. I think it was this was New Year's Eve, if I'm not mistaken. And I was just shocked. I, I was speechless. Um, so I said, OK, thank you. And he said, here's what we're going to pay you. And he gave me a figure and, and I immediately said yes. <laughs> and I immediately became the lowest paid general manager in the league. <laughs> I want to say for the record, I was not representing Bill at that time. <laughs> um, so um, obviously I got home. Um, I was shocked. Everybody in the family was shocked. Uh, lots of people were you know, the family was overjoyed because they were going to get to stay in Buffalo, which we, we, we had come to love. And uh, and and I thought, well, you know, we've got a chance here to uh, to uh, do this right. Kay's not here, but we've got a chance to do this right. And and we, we've, we've got to get the organization focused on football and and not on the past and, and and not on who did what to whom. But get on with the job of winning, which which the organization had lost its way. There was no two ways about that. The irony of the whole thing is that a couple of weeks previous, um, I had in a hotel room somewhere because I was on the road from Thursday till Sunday night in those days. Uh, I'd sat down and written on a yellow sheet of paper a letter to Dave Olson, which essentially said, even though this looks terribly bad, it is soluble for the following reasons. But it's going to take a lot of hard work, a lot of effort and a lot of focus that is not there now. But it's not nearly as bad as people portray it. Now, whether that had something to do with my getting the job or not, I don't know. Um, that was, it was just my way of thanking Dave, uh, you know, for having the ability to work with him. And, and secondly, to just tell him how I felt about the future of the franchise. In any event, uh, we had the, we had the uh, press conference. I introduced myself as Bill Who which was appropriate because there wasn't a soul outside of outside of the people in the office and, and a few of the friends that I'd made in Buffalo that knew that I even worked for the Bills. And um, and then came up from the press conference. And actually, obviously, that's a happy day when when you get a job. And the first person that came in the office was the ticket manager. Keep in mind. We had an 80,000-seat stadium at the time. Ticket manager came in and he said, well, uh, you've just gotten all the good news of being general manager. 
The bad news is that we have 12,000 season tickets for next year. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that would work well this year, 12,000 and 80,000 seat stadium, but not then. Not then. And uh, the, the next call I got was uh, uh, from Jim Finks, who is then the president of the uh, New Orleans Saints. And as we mentioned on previous podcasts, had been, had been a friend and a mentor. And the, the my assistant said, Mr. Finks is on the line. And I said, oh, great. Thank you. So I picked up the phone. I said, how you doing? And he said, "Congratulations! You're one. You're one day closer to being fired." (laughs) (laughs) An auspicious beginning, to say the least. (laughs) Uh, But hey, it's a perfect segue because into next week's episode, we'll figure out how you were charged with filling some of those seats with the eventual signing and bringing of Jim Kelly to Buffalo. So without any further ado, Rick, I think we're on to the audible and you have this week's first one and it's a fan question. Yeah, this is a fan question. Bill and I have talked about this uh, uh, during the past couple of weeks. So Bill, bear with me. I, you know, I think it's a reasonable question from a fan. I know some of what you're going to say, but please be gentle with both of us. Okay. He says, uh, dear Bill Polian with, what feels like a massive amount of injuries to starters and season-ending ones at that, are we on the threshold that says preseason OTAs and so on are necessary? I know that you talked about it in the latest Audible. If not, when? Well, uh, yes, I think we're finding out that some form of preseason is necessary. Um. Is it three games? I think most football people would like that. Is it two games? I think the league office and some owners would like that. It's going to fall somewhere in that vicinity. Uh, you're going to need, by reduce, let's assume it's two games, you're going to need um, a couple or maybe three scrimmages, joint practices against other teams to get your team ready. Uh, you can't have a truncated training camp the way we did now, although the rules that apply to training camp uh, since the 11 collective bargaining agreement are fine. I don't I don't have any problem with that. And I don't think many coaches do. Um, OTAs are another matter. And uh, and I think that we ought to take a look at that in terms of extending the strength and conditioning program, Bill Parcells has, and many other knowledgeable strength and conditioning people have contended for years that we need six weeks of strength and conditioning. And I agree with that completely before they ever hit the field. So let's get our six weeks in. If that leaves us six or eight or nine OTA practices, that's okay. We'll be fine with that so long as we get the strength and conditioning part of it built up. That's what we're seeing, I think, contributing to some degree to the injuries at this point in time. Now, this is way too early to make judgments on injuries. We need to wait until the end of the season yeah, until we get the statistics, and then the competition committee will talk about it. 
But our, our, our questioner is exactly right. It's the right question to ask because strength and conditioning, OTAs in the preseason and injuries go hand in hand. So to drill down just a little bit deeper on that, though, uh, distinguish uh, for uh, our question asker, who is terrific, uh, the difference, you think, between soft tissue injuries and real orthopedic injuries relative to practice and so on. Well, trauma injuries, broken legs, broken arms, uh, broken collarbones, broken wrists, are unfortunately part and parcel of the game. Uh, Whether knee injuries, ligament injuries, uh, can be uh, somehow affected by strength and conditioning braces at all is a question that is asked forever, and no one seems to have a definitive answer for it. We do know that shoes and artificial shoes that are not compatible with artificial turf do contribute to high ankle sprains. Uh, but that's the only scientific evidence that I've come across that deals with that. So trauma injuries uh, are are always going to be with us. The question of soft tissue injuries, ligaments, muscle strains, uh, pulled muscles, uh, you know, ankle sprains, things things of that nature uh, are are directly related to strength conditioning and hydration and, and fatigue. So those things we can we can we can deal with. We can make a dent in. And I've always said that. Um, if I were to go back as a team president or general manager, which obviously I'm not, but if I were, the first thing I would do would to bring my analytics people in and, and say to them, I want you to get with the top biomechanics people in the country, and I want an in-depth study on the last three years of our injuries. You tell me why they happened, how they happened, under what conditions, and what conclusions you can draw from that. We're missing the boat. Now, I know the league is doing that on a league-wide basis. I don't know the clubs are. But if they're not, you're missing the boat on that. There's, there's so much that analytics can help us learn in conjunction with doctors, trainers, biomechanists that, that can, can make us better. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. All right. Well, with mine, I'm going to take us into a little different direction. So the, we're going to in the next in the coming weeks, we're going to have a special episode where we kind of look at the first uh, several weeks of the season and review and kind of give you guys some insights on what we're seeing from the season. But so what we want to do in my audible today is build kind of get you to give us some takes on any insights or any things that you saw from this week uh in the league i could not help myself uh as i sort of uh now knowing you have sort of by default become a bills fan in the bills game yesterday with all the k gun talk in the bills raiders broadcast was there what were your sort of key takeaways from from this past week in the league and do these bills remind you at all of sort of some of the your early super bowl teams uh that you had in buffalo well, it's hard to make those comparisons without without a full season's worth of, of work. But um, I'll give you sort of the top line takeaways um, that that I've seen thus far. With in the Bills' case, um, little concerned about the pass rush. 
It got going in the fourth quarter, so that was a good sign, but it was missing until then. So are there enough pass rushers? Uh, a lot of this is affected on a week-to-week basis by injuries, too, and I recognize that. Well, that's just a question that I came away with. Secondly, Josh Allen is playing lights out, but he needs to have a light on <laughs> in his game management head all the time. Because the play that he made at the end of the game, which resulted in an interception, is inexcusable and unforgivable because he had a field goal that would have put the game out of reach in his pocket. There was no reason to make that play. He just got excited and tried to make a play. But you can't win championships doing those things because had he done that against the old Tom Brady New England Patriots, guess what? They would have cashed it in. Bye-bye. So you can't give people gifts. Bill, is that is that the kind of thing that, that going into a situation like that, knowing what was going to be at stake on, say, third down, that a coach would say to a young quarterback, Josh, if it's not there, don't try? Or is that, at this point in his career, something you would just expect him to know on his own? Well, I don't know if, if, if Sean told him that or not. I can't remember if there was a timeout prior to the play, but certainly he'll hear it from his coach and his coordinator and his, and, and his position coach today, that's for sure. And he'll learn a lesson from it. He'll, he'll remember it. Uh, Peyton Manning made a, a similar mistake in a, in a playoff game one time, trying to go for a touchdown and, 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 and you know, instead of ensuring a chip shot field goal to tie the game, uh, by running the ball and then going for the touchdown uh, to win it. And, and we ended up losing the game because of the 41-yard field goal was missed. So, um, you know, you, you, you learn from experience, but it's not a criticism. Like I said, he's playing lights out, but quarterbacking is, is not just about that, that, that physical playing at the position. It's also managing the game. So that, that, that's not a concern, but it, but it certainly the coaches will correct it today. In terms of the Ravens, um, there is a way to defense Lamar. Um, you have to know how to do it. Kansas City did. Washington did not. Uh, you treat him <laughs> as a runner first, last, and always. You spill everything, and, uh, and, and, and you make him make the hard throws. And you don't put him in a position where he can get free runners down the middle of the field, which is where he likes to throw the ball. So Washington didn't do that and ended up paying a price for it. We we tried hard. I thought we looked okay yesterday. I thought we gave it a good good college try. I thought we were going to lose by 500 points. So the fact that we were kind of quasi in the game going into half, I felt pretty good. So uh, what do you want to do? Give them participation trophy, Scott? Uh, I think that's what we're doing we this season. Hard. I honestly think we're trying hard. We're, Come on, Coach Rivera, building NFL, a culture. Buddy. I I'm very concerned about Dwayne. I am I, being totally honest. I I don't think uh, I, I I'm very worried about Dwayne. Well, you got time. You got time for that to to deal with that. Um, but is it a bad sign that we already have these leaks that that we're we're maybe making a change at quarterback? Something's got to be wrong because Coach Rivera is not that kind of guy. So they must be seeing something they don't like. Yeah, you know, I'm sure they are. When you when you don't win, you're seeing things yeah. you don't like. 
it's, it's the score at the end of the game. <laughs> I wouldn't put I wouldn't put a lot of stock in it. You know, Ron's a guy that'll tell you right up front. Uh, the big storyline last week was Drew Brees is finished. He's lost it. His arm is gone, et cetera, et cetera. Hello, 35 points against the Lions. Yeah, yep. yeah. That was a get right. You don't get an award for that, but but uh, Drew is not done. And when Michael Thomas comes back, he'll be back to his old self. Um, the Jaguars have no defense. They've got uh, Chark and, and, and the running back on offense. Uh, a couple of good offensive linemen. Uh, defensively, uh, not much there. Uh, got a chance to see the Panthers against the Cardinals yesterday. Teddy Bridgewater uh, was Teddy Bridgewater, flawless. Uh, not a rocket arm by by any means, not Josh Allen, but, but he can make a lot of throws. Uh, he's as courageous as can be. He's a charismatic leader. Um, you know, absent some phenom in the draft, I'm not so sure they don't think they got their quarterback there. The other thing is that Coach Rule can coach. Uh, and by the way, uh, Phil Snow, their defensive coordinator, had a great game plan for Kyler Murray. <clears throat> I know Kyler Murray is putting up big fantasy numbers, and, and that's fine. Uh, I, don't, I don't deal with fantasy. Uh, he is a, a, a really good thrower. He can throw the football with the best of them. Um, the rest of it is is a work in progress. So uh, I'm not putting him in the Pro Bowl or any of that stuff right now. I mean, that, he's not there yet. But when when you've got the kind of ability to throw the ball that he has, there's there's a lot to work with there. But they have to craft an offense around him that is a pro offense, and, and but takes takes uh, into consideration his ability to make plays outside the pocket. But if you keep him in the pocket, he's 5'10", and he plays like it, um, which is not a knock. But, you know, as Bill Parcells says, there's a way to win every game. You've got to find it. The, the, uh, the Carolina Panthers did. And, by the way, they're playing hard as can be, which is the first indices of, of how, how good a coach is. They're playing hard. Um, Seahawks' Russell Wilson is playing as well as any quarterback has played maybe in a long time in the National Football League. But I worry greatly about their offensive line and about their – but more importantly, their defense. Russell covers up a multitude of sins on the offensive line, and they built their team accordingly. And there's no reason to criticize that. But defensively, because of injury and, and, and other things, I, I worry that they – they can, they can make it all the way with, with that kind of defense. Having said that, Russell is having an out of this world year, and sometimes, especially in this in this period of time, it can take you a long way. Um, Houston is zero and four. They're better than that. Um, the offense is adjusting to the loss of of the great receiver, but defensively. I worry about them too. I don't know that they have enough. They're not going to finish two and fourteen. I don't think the quarterback is better than that. Um, their offensive line is better than that. Their receiving core will will meld and and become better than that. But 
defensively, uh, they're not. It doesn't look like a championship team. The schedule makers didn't do them any favors either, though. No, but I don't. I don't take that into consideration. You, you, you judge the team on how they play, not necessarily who they play. And 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 I don't like what I'm seeing defensively from them. Now, there's an old saying in this league. Having said all of this, uh, good teams get better, bad teams don't. And over the next four weeks we will see the good teams begin to surge and the bad teams begin to sink. So four weeks from now, we'll have a really good feel for who's good and who's not good. Um, Lastly, uh, for those uh, of you in Philadelphia who are ready to jump off the Ben Franklin Bridge and take Carson Wentz with you, um, (laughs) hold on. Please. Carson Wentz is still Carson Wentz. He's playing with pickup guys off the street at receiver. Uh, He's playing with an offensive line that is aged to begin with and now is injured. And he's he's doing amazing (laughs) and and interesting things. He's not perfect, and he can't be because he's under constant pressure uh, and, and, and doesn't have any sync with any of the receivers. It's amazing that he did what he did last night against a pretty good 49er defense. Both teams were beaten to a pulp. They had, that, was a, that was an example of uh, an NFL JV game with all, with right. with a lot of the stars in it, the varsity stars in it, <laughs> and so it made it a great football game. <laughs> that Nick Mullins interception was one of the craziest throws I have ever seen in my entire life. Yeah, late in that game. Yeah, yeah. But Carson Wentz uh, is is still Carson Wentz, and you take him every day and twice on Sunday. Yep. All right. Well, that's it for this week. As as you heard from Bill, Philadelphia, stay calm, but be nervous because I think six wins might win the division this year. And that football team in Washington is coming. Well, if you have any questions or anything you'd like us to cover in the audible or topics you want us to hit, feel free to hit us at I have Bill Polian on Twitter and get ready. Next week is a show that's going to be a real fun one as we get into bringing Jim Kelly to Buffalo. Thank you, guys and enjoy week five. Well, Jim Kelly's getting there. Hallelujah. Let me say that. And it's been fun today. Look forward to talking to you next week, everybody. Stay safe. Stay well. We'll talk to you soon. Stay safe, everyone. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.